Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. For the past six years, an independent research program at New America called Ranking Digital Rights has evaluated the policies and practices of some of the world's largest technology and telecom firms. Ranking Digital Rights evaluates more than 300 aspects of each company it ranks. Its rankings fall broadly into three categories, governance, freedom of expression, and privacy. Following the release of this year's report, which we covered at Tech Policy Press, Ranking Digital Rights hosted a session on charting the future of big tech accountability. Here's Natalie Marischal, Policy Director at Ranking Digital Rights, and a past guest on this podcast to introduce her panel. Uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, Sarah Couturier-Tano is an expert in corporate research and shareholder engagement. She leads dialogues with Canadian and international companies to advance ESG issues, including human rights, decent work, and corporate lobbying. Uh, she's published several issue briefs on current shareholder and policy topics using her insight from her background in non-financial auditing. Jesse Larrick is a co-founder of Accountable Tech. He has a decade of experience in political communications and issue advocacy, including serving as the foreign policy spokesman for the Clinton 2016 presidential campaign, where he was part of the team managing the response to Russia's information warfare operation. Chris Lewis is president and CEO of Public Knowledge. Before becoming president and CEO, Chris was the vice president of PK from 2012 to 2019, leading the organization's day-to-day advocacy and political strategy on Capitol Hill and with the administration. Katarzyna Shemilevich is an expert in human rights and technology, a lawyer, and an activist. She's a co-founder and the president of the Panopticon Foundation, a Polish NGO defending human rights in surveillance society, and one of the leaders in corporate accountability in the EU. Last but certainly not least, Sophie Zhang became a whistleblower after spending two years and eight months at Facebook. During that time, she tried but was not successful in efforts to fix the company from within. She personally caught two national governments using Facebook to manipulate their own citizenry while also revealing concerning decisions made by Facebook regarding inauthenticity in Indian and U.S. politics. So as you can see, we have a really illustrious panel here uh, who's been deep in the trenches of corporate accountability from a variety of angles. I'm really excited to, to chart the future of our, mo- of our movement together with you all. Uh, Jesse, let's start with you. So you're the co-founder of Accountable Tech, uh, which is a campaigning organization working to bring about long-term structural reform to tackle the existential threat that social media companies pose to our information ecosystem and democracy. Tell us about what led you and your co-founder, Nicole Gill, to focus on this issue and what you think this movement has accomplished so far. Thanks so much for having me today. And uh, I think that you hit the nail on the head even, even in your question when you say an existential threat. Um, and that's really how I've come to view disinformation and the current information ecosystem that we live in, uh, in which there is no shared consensus reality, no shared baseline of facts. And social media, I think, has been certainly not uh, the sole, you know, social media platforms didn't invent disinformation or polarization or racism or extremism or echo chambers, but they serve as a, as a unique accelerant on each of those fronts. And as the fabric continues to fray and we lose that ability to have cool-headed conversations, to have policy-focused conversations, to have fact-based conversations, 
I, I think democracy is day by day at, at more and more risk. And so we felt that this was an, an issue area where I think people are starting to recognize that on every issue where they want to see progress, you know, disinformation and the information ecosystem serve as a serve to thwart that because it is this intersectional issue. It's very hard to win arguments or have a functional democracy or have productive conversations if you cannot even communicate facts, if you can't reach people, if everything is that's is being sort of filtered and warped through a lens of a few dominant platforms, which are built to optimize engagement, which often means amplifying the most toxic things on the platform and doing it in a way where that's micro-targeted to each person to play on their personal biases. So you have this dynamic where it's simultaneously global and ubiquitous, but also unprecedented in how precise and personalized everything is. Um, and so I think, you know, we we have done everything in our power since we thought about this <laughs> and stood this organization up to try to fight on all fronts because there is no silver bullet to, to this myriad of inter- interrelated problems. But I do think we've pushed for direct corporate accountability, trying to call out and educate broader public on some of the you know, fundamental uh, flaws that we're worried about uh, with the dominant social media platforms. We've pushed for legislation and, and education in the US. We've worked with our friends in, in Europe. And I think, uh, I'm sure Kasha will get more in depth in, on the DSA and DMA that just uh, are making their way through Brussels, but really exciting to see how comprehensive those proposals are in tackling some of the, the fundamental harms here. And, and we're, we're seeing uh, progress at the state level as well. Just yesterday, the age-appropriate design code in California advanced. And so I think even with the level of fluency that members of Congress are talking about these issues compared to where they were a few years ago, uh, the progress has been has been really significant. And so there's certainly an enormous amount of work to do, but uh, I do think we're making progress. And I'm very grateful for everyone on this panel, yourself included, for helping to drive that. Thank you, Jesse. Um, so, so Kasha, before we get into the the details of uh, the DMA and, and DSA, how does what, what Jesse said compare with your experience in Poland and, and Europe more broadly? Can you reflect a little bit on where our movement has taken us so far? Um, yes, I will do my best in the short time we have. Uh, truly, I, I feel we live uh, in 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 interesting time for for regulating big tech. Uh, last five years in Europe has been uh, we have witnessed uh, increasing political support for deep reform. Uh, if you go back to what we heard from uh, European Commission uh, leaders like uh, Breton, uh, Ursula von der Leyen at the beginning of their term. They clearly attacked the very business model behind, uh, behind big tech, uh, engagement-based business model, uh, advertising technology, all that has been clearly set as target for regulation. The, the being big itself has been uh, seen as risk and something that EU not only should react to with a number of pro-competition, pro-consumer cases, but even uh, preempt with proactive regulation. So that movement supported by by whistleblowing, supported by cases like Cambridge Analytica, we still remember that, right? We have new cases since then, but that fair with Cambridge Analytica has been, I think, pretty influential here in Europe in informing political agenda. So on one hand, we have seen incredible movement of policymakers towards critical agenda. On the other hand, if you look at 
the goals set for the reform we are we are witnessing today, the DMA and DSA together as a package. Well, there are obviously two legs. One is people's empowerment through uh, new tools, uh, the, the new, new, new tools and safeguards. And I will go back to this, how, how much worth that is. On the other hand, there is always, always the, the economic liberal narrative present. No surprise, the, the deeper we go in, in the reform, the longer it takes. It took two years to work out details, the bigger the impact of the market logic. So uh, it's sad, but it's also realistic to say that after two years uh, in the making, that regulation has been, to, to a great extent, uh, influenced by big tech lobbying and the most revolutionary uh, aspects of it, the, the biggest promises, uh, have not been uh, implemented at the end. So the, the EU is obviously much further ahead uh, than, than the US in, uh, in, in regulating big tech having recently finalized both the, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, though we won't see the final text of the DSA for a bit longer. And maybe you can help us understand why that is, because uh, I know that for, for, for a lot of our audience and for me, uh, policymaking in Europe is, is a bit of a mystery. So maybe you can help us unpack that a little bit. Uh, can you tell us about these two pieces of legislation uh, and how they, how they change the fight for big tech accountability and uh, maybe give us a short preview of what's coming next in Brussels? Yeah, uh, truly it is complicated. Honestly, we as civil society lobbyists only after being in that process, we understand what's really going on there. Uh, very long story short, uh, there are three uh, key bodies involved in the process. European Commission uh, responsible for proposing the reform, European Parliament, which is usually seen as the most progressive body, at least for the sake of um, uh, broad representation of various societal concepts of on, on how to regulate. So we always have the left and the middle and the right with the middle being the strongest voice. So um, uh, Christian Democrats still dictating more or less the mainstream. Uh, and we have the council, which is uh, the representation of governments. And again, here, the whole variety of uh, opinions, positions, uh, uh, with uh, pending politics being incredibly important. Uh, needless to say, the conflict in Ukraine uh, has... Uh, open certain gateways that seem close and close the other problems that were important a year ago. So this is all pretty dynamic. We have to observe that. And we know not, not, not always we can because part of this process is extremely uh, non-transparent. Uh, everything that happens in the council and in the trilogue, the trilogue is the moment where the three come together to negotiate the final shape of the legislation. These meetings are mainly technical meetings uh, where only experts sit and they are not expected to leak out information, which usually happens. So we can predict what will be in the final legislation, but officially we have to wait a month longer, maybe three weeks longer, uh, after the end of official negotiations uh, to see uh, the final text after the technical people sit down and basically type um, put on paper what has been discussed behind the closed door. Uh, so whatever we have, uh, whatever we say now these days is based on leaks, is based on um, assurances that we received from various stakeholders being more or less public about the process. Ironically, uh, the negotiating, uh, uh, the, the meeting where they negotiated lasted until 2 uh, a.m., uh, 
up well past midnight, but uh, around 12 uh, in the morning, Co- Commissioner Breton already published on Twitter the whole stream explaining what has been won. <laughs> so, well, the intransparency, the lack of transparency does not prevent PR from happening as, as usual. This is how it goes. Uh, people uh, comment on this reform without really seeing the, the, the text uh, yet. Okay, so maybe maybe it's best to, to hold off on a deep analysis until we actually see the text then. So what about the U.S.? Um, Chris, what's the state of play here? And what can civil society do to pressure policymakers uh, on this front? Might we actually achieve some degree of, of tech accountability through legislation or, or regulation in the U.S. this year? What do you think? I think it's challenging. And, and, and congratulations, Natalie and, and Jessica, on the, the latest report. It's fantastic work. You know, I'm I'm optimistic in the long run. I, I'm pessimistic in the short run. I think we're further behind, as you as you noted, we're further behind Europe and the U.S. And and so I think we need to pick up the pace. Unfortunately, uh, what we've seen in the United States and in Washington so far uh, is a lot of focus on small one-off fixes to um, to specific things that, that legislators have seen in the news. Uh, some of these. You know, we support public knowledge, and I know others here uh, also support. Uh, but we, what we aren't seeing is a real framework approach like we're seeing in, in Europe. Uh, in the long run, that's where I think we need to be. Um, and so hopefully uh, what we'll get out of some of the one-off proposals that we're seeing around privacy and around uh, uh, competition policy and antitrust uh, and algorithmic oversight, hopefully that will you know, form the basis of how people understand what accountability should look like. And we can move towards uh, more of a framework approach that we're seeing in Europe. Uh, that's my hope. But there's some real challenges that we face. Unfortunately, I think some of the biggest challenges we face in the United States are are really uh, political and ideological, given the atmosphere in Washington these days. The ideological divide uh, means that it's very difficult for folks to agree uh, on things, and, and that's seeping into a lot of the debate. For example, in the United States, we know that we will face in tech accountability the challenge of making accountability work with the First Amendment uh, and First Amendment protections. Uh, but unfortunately, we've also, at the same time over the last few years, seen a real uh, breakdown of the consensus in the United States of what the First Amendment means, what uh, free speech and free expression uh, protections are and should be. Um, and that a lot of that comes out of broader political fights that are really not related to tech policy per se. But unfortunately, it's impacting where people see how people view harms online and and what solutions they'd like to see. Um, We also run uh, the challenge because so many of the companies that we want accountability around are based in the United States. There's there's national pride involved. And so uh, often when proposals are put forward, uh, you'll hear folks say, oh, we can't do that because it will hurt the U.S. or it will hurt U.S. companies and our our competitiveness broadly. I, I think that's very short-sighted, uh, and, and hopefully uh, we can, as civil society, help build back our consensus on what the First Amendment and what free expression is and should be. Also build consensus on basic understanding of accountability should look like. 
that's difficult, but it's really the challenge in front of us to, to bridge some of the ideological divides that we're seeing in our country right now to build a conventional wisdom around some of those ideas. If we can do that, then I think we can get to more of a framework approach. Um, and in, in the meantime, I think we're going to see a few smaller bills go forward, things that promote competition, bills around um, self-preferencing and non-discrimination, uh, bills uh, hopefully around um, platforms like the, the App Store or, or broader interoperability. There's probably going to be a push this summer around privacy, um, but whether parties can come together and agree on what those enforcement structures look like is unclear yet. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. And, and I think civil society, we have a lot of work to help folks who may differ ideologically on, on various issues realize that they have the same issue at stake here, the, the right to, to freely express themselves and to have, have safe communications online, even when they disagree with each other. So that's the real challenge in front of us uh, as civil society. Thanks, Chris. I'm, and I'm glad to hear you uh, say that you're optimistic, at least in their long run. You know, I, I, I have a lot of conversations where people who uh, with, with people who are very pessimistic in all runs of time. And, um, you know, for, for me, I, I personally think it's important as, as, as advocates, as, as activists to, to choose to be, uh, to be optimistic, because if you don't have that optimism that, that you can win, uh, you lose the will to fight. Right. And I think that's the most dangerous thing for any social movement is to give up, uh, give up the idea that you can win before you've even tried. Um, Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit away from uh, civil society advocates into different kinds of, of change makers. Uh, Sophie, I'm, I'm particularly glad that you could join us today for this conversation because you're one of the very few people out there who has worked inside a big tech company, has left and can speak openly uh, because you're not bound uh, by a non-disparagement agreement since you turned down a, a pretty hefty severance package from Facebook. Tell us why you decided to speak out about your former employer. Thank you, Natalie. So just to be clear, I am bound by one non-disparagement agreement that I signed when I joined Facebook. I refused the one I, when I left, so I would be breaking one rather than two. Ultimately, Facebook has dis- hasn't sued me because it would look terrible for them and also admit to that everything that I'm saying is true. <laughs> I'm protected by that rather than me turning down the money. So, so anyways, I I worked at Facebook for, 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 for two and a half years. In my time, though, I caught two national governments red-handed that were breaking Facebook's policies on vast scales to set up fake personas purporting to be their own citizens to, to mislead, harass, and otherwise repress their fellow citizenry. These were very clear-cut cases in which there was absolutely no moral, moral nuance. It was very, no, no one was defending these, on the, these cases on the merits. In other cases, you can say there are real questions at stake. What is the rights decision here? Do we know for certain? But there, but none of those were the case here. And Facebook still took almost a year to act in the case of Honduras, and more than a year to act in the case of Azerbaijan. And ultimately, I recently that, that I was doing, this was all in my spare time. This wasn't my actual job. This was no one's actual job. I had no special training in this area. I'm certainly not a super genius. And the reason that I, some random person out of, out of grad school at her second job, was able to fight, catch two national governments right-handed with no training and no expertise and not being a genius is simply that they were the low-hanging fruit. No one had bothered to look at them before so they could be lazy. Ultimately, you can't fix a solution. You can't fix a problem until you know it exists in the first place. And right now, 
on many issues, only Facebook knows precisely what is going on within Facebook, the platform. I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone to say that Facebook is a company. Its goal is to make money. At, at the end of the day, we don't expect Philip Morris to have a division that tries to make cigarettes less addictive, or Philip Morris to have a division that reimburses Medicare every time someone gets lung cancer. The very idea is a bit ludicrous. Imagine a world in which Philip Morris knows that, that cigarettes give people cancer, but Philip Morris is the only person who knows, and Philip Morris is the only group that has any chance of finding that out. In that situation, I think it would be very important for someone from within the company to come forward. And so that's precisely what I did and I'm still doing today. Well, thank you for, for your whistleblowing and for your activism, Sophie. One of the things that one, one thing you said to me when we talked last month that uh, that I thought was really interesting and that I'd love to, to hear you talk about some more today is that when you brought these concerns to your managers, they used the rhetoric of users' rights to resist taking action against these people who were using, including government officials who were using the platform to hurt other people in various ways. Uh, and it's true that in the early years of the digital rights movement, we were really focused on protecting free expression and privacy for platform users, and perhaps not thinking enough beyond that. What, though I think, I think at by this point, uh, the conversation has caught up to that. Uh, what kind of messages would you like to see? Do you think it's important to see from civil society groups that for us to be sending to companies and to policymakers? What should we be asking for? Absolutely. So just to, again, first provide context. So when I brought these cases up to, to, to leadership at Facebook, often there were concerns about taking precipitous action without warning, without warning people first. Because in terms of fundamentally users' rights, it's, it's about protecting users from the platform. But that can become a problem when users themselves are the platform. I mean, both are valuable initiatives in the same way that, for instance, police advocates and police reform advocates are both valuable initiatives that are naturally at odds. Giving suspects more warning before arresting them, such as the Miranda rights, has reduced false confessions and helped protect people from the police, but they have also made it harder for the police to catch people. And that's the analogy that I'm going to use very broadly here. An additional facet is that at Facebook, the people who judge cases, the policy maker, the policy staffers are the same people who are charged with also lobbying governments and the political officials and essentially get, getting them on the good side, which is a very different paradigm from that in law enforcement or etc. In the United States, if a judge were called upon to try a case and it turned out that they went for weekly lunches with a defendant, they would be required to recuse themselves, I hope. At Facebook, it would be only be a problem if they didn't know the defendant. I'm being a bit flippant, but I think that gets my point across. And so Facebook had incentives to protect the, the important and influential from its own systems under the rhetoric of not taking precipitous action, giving people fair warning, etc. And like you said, that goes back to the initial viewpoint on accountability for, for tech platforms, that it was about accountability for the platform and protecting users from them. I think that I've read the criteria that, that, that RDR uses, and my understanding that most of it is focused on the platform's own transparency about what, about what measures it takes against users, what protections users have in terms of privacy, in terms of enforcement, etc. 
right now it doesn't do much coverage of the other facet, which is protecting protecting users from other users, protecting users from violations of platform policy that are not being enforced or carried out, which I believe is equally important. Because right now there is not much there is not much transparency or visibility into this. So frankly, it's something that I believe would be a good idea for RDR and others similar trans. Federacy groups to do would be to essentially do red team style penetration tests. What I mean is, for instance, I mean, these would have to be done carefully. If you go at it alone, I'm sure Facebook might have will find an excuse to ban you or et cetera. But in principle, accepting those sorts of issues, if you want to know, for instance, how good each company is at taking down fake accounts, the best way to do it is to, in controlled test circumstances, set up your own fake accounts and see how many of them are actually taken down by each company. And then you could report afterwards, we set up 100, net- 100 networks of fake accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, uh, TikTok, etc. Et Facebook took down 10 out of 100, TikTok took down 1 out of 100, Twitter took down 2 out of 100. They're all terrible, but Facebook is the least terrible. I'm making up these numbers, obviously. The same approach could be used, for instance, if you're concerned about hate speech. You could set in through controlled circumstances, set up hate speech, see what percentage of it is taken down. You could see response to user reports, create violating posts, have people report them, and then see how many of them are taken down. Other people are concerned about social media overreach and taking down posts that aren't violating. You could do the exact same approach, make posts that aren't violating, maybe a bit borderline and unclear and report them, perhaps have report similar posts on different sides of the political spectrum. So, so that if you're worried about political bias and see how many of them are taken down incorrectly, and then you could, people have done experiments and there's anecdotal discussion of these sorts of issues, but I don't think there has been any systematic approach at it. And I think that would be extraordinary vulnerable because right now a lot of people are talking past each other based on anecdotal evidence and when you have two billion users on a platform there would be anecdotal evidence for anything those are some really great suggestions for for going beyond our rdr's current uh, research methods and and approach uh, you know obviously in the kind of indicator based uh, research on public publicly available documents is far from the only research method out there uh, and uh, our team is is very much thinking about how we can expand our our current arsenal of, of research tools and uh, and I hope we can continue talking about this uh, in the in the weeks and months to come Sophie now Sarah you come from from an opposite you come from a different perspective of, of Sophie's uh, working as uh, as as an investor and an advocate and of course one of the themes we highlighted in the scorecard is the growing role that investors are playing in tech accountability uh, so Sarah my question for you is what's the business case for investors why why do investors care about human rights in the tech sector and what strategies can they use to hold companies accountable? And what strategies have you specifically used uh, to this end? Thank you, Natalie. It's true that when you put these two terms, uh, investors and human rights in the same sentence, the general public uh, often raises a brow uh, because most people don't really see investors as allies in the fight for human rights or democracy in general. Investors, because they are uh, the owners of the companies in which they invest, they are in a unique position to push companies in certain directions. Uh, they can leverage their uh, ownership and power, such as uh, their voting rights, for example, to do that. And that's exactly what we do at SHARE. We help investors towards their uh, assets in ways that contribute to positive social and environmental outcomes. 
So now, while it's true that the idea, um, you know, that profit should be the only externality uh, investors should look for when taking investment decision, uh, this idea is very prevalent. Sorry, that was my point. Uh, there is still a significant portion of investors, especially institutional institutional investors, that agree on the materiality of other types of externalities, including social, societal and environmental outcomes. And while a few investors would base um, that assessment on moral values and ethics, um, most of investors believe that social or environmental impacts represent risk for the companies uh, and sometimes uh, the economies and societies. And therefore, this risk should be managed. Um, if I take uh, the example of human rights in the tech sector, I must say that uh, it is a fairly new area for most investors, and we see uh, this risk as emerging. And there is a growing um, understanding that we need to pay attention to the way some companies, um, because of their outsized uh, influence on society, may impact human rights and democracies, like Meta Platform, for instance. Or is that also the case for companies that rely um, on the collection and exploitation of personal data, including facial recognition, uh, like Google, for example? So I can take two examples to illustrate uh, what investors can do to support the fight for human rights in the tech sector. Uh, the first example is about meta platforms. It is clear that this company has a human rights problem and there are existing human rights risks and probably new risks to come with the development of the metaverse, for instance. Um, and that's the reason why we co-filed a shareholder proposal with other investors, including Adorna Capital, asking the company to conduct a human rights impact assessment on the metaverse. So this proposal will be voted at the next AGM. And basically, uh, the rule is that if uh, a majority of investors vote in favor of this proposal, uh, good practice is that the company should implement the proposal. Um, now, you know, Meta platform is uh, is a bit strange uh, because you know as investors we believe that this risk or um, human rights risk are amplified by the company structure that uh, concentrates most of uh, the power into Mark Zuckerberg's hands because it has a double function of CEO and chairman and this means that there is no real check and balance within the, within the company and this is um, essential in every company to ensure that the management takes appropriate decisions and that the board serves the best interests of shareholders. In Meta Platform's case, shareholders' voice is not heard. Uh, the management and the board have failed at many, many, many occasions to address shareholders' concerns, uh, especially on human rights and governance matters, uh, including when shareholders have, um, you know, in maturity voted for some shareholders' proposals. So we, a month, uh, two months ago, uh, approximately, we convened a group of 15 investors, including SHARE, uh, that collectively represent 2.7 trillion of asset under management. And we wrote to the company and we asked that they implement certain governance reform that would strengthen shareholders' rights and to not renominate Peggy Alford and Mark Anderson's board members and nominate two truly independent directors instead. So the company ignored our calls uh, for, uh, so the next logical step for us was to um, recommend every shareholders to vote against those two directors to send a clear signal to the board and the management that we need change and that change needs to happen now. Um, so Meta Platform AGM will be at the end of the month. So we'll see the result of this vote. Usually we consider that uh, this kind of vote um, is good when more than 10 to 15% of shareholders uh, put it against di directors.
So I'd like to use the other example of Alphabet. So with the support of uh, the ranking digital team, we designed uh, and filed a shareholder proposal asking the company to conduct uh, what we call a human rights impact assessment to identify and address potential human rights risk that would be uh, created by um, Alphabet's new advertising system called Flock. Um, the company cancelled the implementation of the plug and decided to implement instead uh, another advertising system called Topics API. Uh, we had a call with members of the leadership team of Alphabet and they said that uh, they cancelled the plug uh, because of um, negative feedback as they received from civil society actors, experts and also investors saying to this proposal. Um, so this kind of, you know, proposals and communications between shareholders and companies really help to amplify the voice of, um, you know, civil society actors. So we agreed to withdraw the proposal. And in exchange, um, the company agrees to commit to meet with us twice between now and October and to include in those conversations members of the ranking digital team. And we hope that with the presence of, um, you know, members of, I mean, these experts, uh, that, you know, we'll be able to, to move the needle. So I think that what we're doing with meta platforms or even alphabets really illustrates well some tools we have as investors to move the needle and support civil society organizations to push for better human rights in the tech sector. And we know that our um, impact is meaningful but modest. But I believe that in these circumstances, um, all hands on deck uh, is a necessary approach and investors should play their part. Thank you, Sarah. And I am going to start with an audience uh, question uh, for Sophie. Uh, Sophie, why do you think America focused more on the whistleblowing and the from uh, Frances Hagen, uh, Hagen on what, what she found versus what, what you identified, uh, given that you blew the whistle first. Why do you think her, her whistleblowing had more, more take up with, with the public discourse in the U.S.? I'm not a public relations expert, so it's just personal speculation, of course, not an expert. My guess is that it's a combination of factors. First, first that Francis spoke to issues that were more broadly interesting and intriguing to Americans, such as, for instance, teen mental health crisis, which, I mean, I, I frankly, I think that it's more relatable to most Americans than abuse of Facebook by dictators in Honduras or Azerbaijan. Even when I came forward about decisions made in the United States, that, that was mostly that was mostly a sideshow which did not come, get much pickup. The second aspect I'd point to is that, frankly, I, I was probably pretty naive when I came forward. I, I thought I would just get, go out there to talk to everyone, and they could and they would dis, could decide on their own whether. To listen to me or not, Francis took a more proactive approach of getting PR support and etc., which frankly was a lot more effective than what I then did, which is why P PR people get paid in the first place, I suppose. I mean, by now it's a bit too late for me and being essentially unscripted and, and doing everything myself is essentially my brand now. So, so I'm running with it. I do find it a bit funny how, how, some, people, how some people criticize Francis for being uh, too prepared and, and poised and, and scripted. And then they turn around and look at me and say, you can't trust her. She stutters. She has an accent. She's not prepared enough. I mean, ultimately, some people will criticize the messenger when what they dislike is the message itself. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely on point. So in in her in her presentation Jessica talked about uh, a lot of 
you know, the big dramatic uh, events of the year that that Im- that implicate big tech accountability. We probably don't have time to cover all of them today, but one thing I want to make sure that we really do talk about is is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, obviously, big tech is not responsible for for Putin's regime and uh, and and you know the the long history of of Russian imperialism. That's that's not something we're going to pin on 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 big tech platforms. But they are nevertheless implicated in how this conflict is is playing out and how this invasion and brutal occupation is pay, playing out. And uh, and Kasia, you're you're I know you're 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 quite close to the the situation, being in Poland and being active active in in your Eastern European activist networks. Um, what what can we learn today? Uh, what can we learn about how big tech and tech companies operate today uh, from their recent actions uh, in Ukraine, but also in Belarus, Russia, and the broader region? And um, how should that, that influence our, advocate, our collective advocacy agenda? I'm happy to say that in terms of our agenda, the civil society agenda, including certainly what ranking rights has been saying for, for ages, we do not need to correct anything. We have been saying this from the very beginning of that conversation. I think that business model uh, is the problem and business model needs to change. The problem is that policymakers, even when they say they are ready to regulate, as they have said in, in, in the EU, and they have declared war against big tech abusers, they are still not exactly ready to attack the core of the business model, which is based on uh, people's uh, engagement, is based on exploiting users' attention, uh, is based on making money from observation, from behavior observations. If we don't attack that, we will not change the machine behind uh, disinformation or or war on information that uh, has escalated um, nowadays in, in my part of Europe. It wasn't good news for our movement when we have seen that in the, in the first weeks of war, everybody, uh, including governments, ha- has basically targeted big tech as the solution, asking them to clean uh, certain uh, disinformation agents from the internet to block certain accounts to block uh, certain people or, or uh, Russian agencies from speaking publicly as if it was a way to solve the problem. While we all know that the solution is much, much deeper in the engine of this platform. So speaking to that problem, I can only uh, quickly indicate uh, what we are hoping for in the DSA that might prove to some extent useful in solving that problem, but not radical enough. Uh, first thing, which is also very interesting uh, in the context of what has been said today, we will have um, a, a much more robust uh, risk assessment mechanism in the DSA, meaning that platforms themselves will be expected by the regulator to self-assess risks caused by their business model, including uh, the way they target ads, including uh, social media algorithms and impact of these algorithms and their moderation practices and their targeting mechanisms on democracy, public health, uh, cybersecurity, everything that matters. If they do this risk assessments right, we will no longer need whistleblowing. Obviously, it's just a joke. I know they will not do that well enough because they have no interest to do that well enough. But at the same time, we have European Commission invested in uh, strong enforcement measures able to force a better risk assessment. And more interestingly for us here, 
we have new rights for civil society and other independent experts, including so-called vetted researchers, to demand access to data about all these mechanisms uh, that operate inside of large platforms. So hopefully we will be able to question uh, risk assessments when they are not uh, done properly and demand real data about how, uh, for example, social media recommender systems or um, uh, targeting algorithms uh, operate, what type of uh, data they take into account, what type of optimization targets, uh, you know, the, the big tech uses and all that. So uh, hopefully this is a foot in the door uh, for us in Europe and hopefully globally as well to demand more accountability. Finally, Again, not radical enough, but interesting measure. There will be limitations on how uh, big tech can target people. Uh, in Europe, we wanted to prohibit essentially the use of observed data about humans because we believe that hardly ever people would authorize behavioral observations to be used against them, to manipulate them with the use of sponsored content in general. Uh, unfortunately, that proved too radical uh, in the debate we had uh, in Brussels, but what we want is a partial ban on the use of sensitive data, including observed sensitive data, uh, and any data about children. So again, not radical, far from what we wanted, but a foot in the door of uh, uh, changing the most toxic aspects of that business model. Right. And of course, this the uh, you're referring to a ban on surveillance advertising, which is something that I know that uh, Accountable Tech and uh, and Ranking Digital Rights uh, both support. Uh, now, here's a question from the audience, and I think uh, either either Chris or, or Jesse uh, could take it. What uh, would you have a sense of how American lawmakers are viewing the the deeper European reforms that Kasha was just talking about, and uh, and what would it take to get U.S. lawmakers to uh, to move in that direction here? Uh, question for either of you, and if the other one wants to build on what the first one says, please go for it. We're trying to do some education around the DSA and DMA right now because I think, frankly, a lot of lawmakers' reaction uh, in the U.S. to the DSA and DMA is not really knowing what it is. And uh, I think Chris alluded earlier to sort of like the gut reaction, uh, reflexive opposition that um, I think we still sort of have here in the U.S. when especially, you know, regulation is sort of sacrosanct here as it is, but certainly when, you know, the Europeans are regulating our great American companies, I think there's a sort of an antiquated uh, sentiment from Washington that it's their role to to jump to the defense of, you know, big tech's bottom line. Um, but I think one of the interesting things, and we've put together, I'm happy to circulate this to the community afterwards, but we put together actually a memo that really runs through. Uh, one of the things I find most interesting is that the DSA and DMA, really, it, to me, it reads like an omnibus package of some of the best pieces of legislation that are before Congress. So today, the Senate is marking up uh, the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which enshrines a lot of, you know, would enshrine a lot of similar transparency mechanisms that are included in the Digital Services Act. Um, that's a bipartisan bill from Senator Portman is supporting along with uh, Senator Coons and Senator Klobuchar. 
there is, you know, risk assessments are sort of, and, and independent auditing are sort of central to uh, the bipartisan Kids Online Safety Act that, um, that Senator Blumenthal and uh, Blackburn have introduced. And, you know, the DMA, you know, I, I won't run through the full litany of everything, but here, but the DMA shares a lot of uh, qualities with the antitrust bill that Chris alluded to earlier, which takes direct aim at self-preferencing um, and other anti-competitive abuses in the digital market. You know, I wish that we were where we were further along and um, and that we had uh, more of a, as Chris said, a framework where the sort of a sweeping, you know, all of the above approach that really takes a comprehensive look at digital markets and how we need to rewrite the rules. But the other point that I make to, to folks on the Hill is that if we don't make the rules, the rules are going to get rewritten without us. So, you know, I think I hope that it is, at, at, if nothing else, a major impetus uh, for Congress to get their get their act together and finally push some legislation across the finish line after years of talking about it. That was well put, uh, Jesse. Uh, I'll just add, for better or for worse, we may need to advocate for and, and get our policymakers in Washington to start to build on the studies that have been done in Europe that have been, you know, we've had, uh, you know, an investigation in the House of Representatives here in Washington uh, that was excellent looking at some of the harms, uh, purely competition harms around uh, tech accountability. But there's much more work that we need to do uh, to build on that, to look beyond competition harms uh, to actual consumer harms um, and and other, uh, other threats. So, you know, uh, you know, I'm encouraged, you know, when, when I say, said before, I'm, I'm not encouraged in short run, but encouraged in the long run. The hope is that as, as policymakers learn the details of what's happening in Europe, uh, that uh, they can see that many of the harms that they're concerned about with, uh, with the, the tech sector are being looked at, that they'll hopefully find interest in finding you know, American style approaches to to addressing those challenges. You know, we're already seeing the Federal Trade Commission, uh, for example, starting a proceeding to look at uh, surveillance advertising uh, and whether or not there could be a ban, should be a ban, something, you know, short of a ban. You know, these sorts of analyses and studies are important. This is why we've called for years to have an expert digital regulator for tech platforms, because we're just not seeing Congress keeping up with the pace of technology, technological change um, and changes in the marketplace. And so while there, there is increasing interest, uh, I would hope that you know, the work at the FTC or, or the empowerment of an expert regulator could go a long way to creating the sort of trust in the analysis of the marketplace that our policymakers in the U.S. will trust uh, rather than feeling that they're, they're somehow a threat uh, from the European analysis to uh, to American companies. When we hear American legislators talk about uh, digital harms, they're often the same ones they're seeing in Europe, but then somehow uh, this protectionism uh, comes about. And we just, we just have to find our way around that. Uh, just to follow up to um, uh, what Chris just said, uh, would be really extremely helpful for the debate we have in Europe to, to gather more evidence from the industry of how alternative, more ethical business models play out in practice. We feel here in Europe that there is this Stockholm syndrome we observe, especially with electronic media, who uh, for ages have been critical of what the big tech's business model demands from them, driving the quality of journalism down and making electronic media uh, more and more economic dependent on clickbait, on the sensational emotional content, you know, everything we uh, uh, rightfully uh, criticize, especially in the times of information war. 
But at the same time, nobody seems to believe that the alternative, uh, economic alternative is viable, that we could move to contextual ads or um, profiling people based on their consent, uh, as if there was no economic evidence to back these claims. It's very difficult for us, the civil society, to come up to industry and say, hey, guys, we know better. We will now tell you how, how you do your business. So it's more likely that we just say, what are the red lines on civil society side? What are the safeguards? What are the prohibitions that we want the business to observe? It is ethical and, and, and correct when we say so, but not, as, not, not, not extremely efficient if you want to convince policymakers to say, yeah, we are ready to, to, to execute the ban. So any uh, reliable uh, evidence uh, coming from U.S. backing uh, that discussion against uh, surveillance um, advertising would be extremely useful. Another really serious development that's on my mind is uh, is the the, the news uh, based on a on a Supreme Court leak a few days ago that uh, the the U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to to overturn Roe versus Wade uh, with uh, really severe consequences not only for the right to abortion but for reproductive rights for a whole host of of individual rights and liberties uh, that that the court has uh, has recognized on the basis of, of the same right to privacy that, that underpins uh, Roe versus Wade. And uh, there, as with all questions of, of rights, there are implications to, for, for big tech uh, and big tech accountability. And unfortunately, this is another area where, uh, where, where we can look to, to Europe for, for lessons learned and, and experience. Uh, Katarzyna, I know that you and your organization have done a great deal of work around uh, reproductive rights and, and, and the right to information and, and privacy online in that context. What, what advice do you have or what lessons learned can you share with, uh, with, with American civil society groups and, uh, and, and individuals uh, in, in this context as we contemplate the possibility of, of Roe being overturned? Well, I guess it all starts with um, informing um, the society of what is really at stake and uh, preventing the debate from landing in extremes. Uh, the worst possible result, which we unfortunately observe in Poland, is that both sides of the debate uh, are using more and more radical uh, arguments and it's uh, less and less evidence-based or uh, or more simply more emotional. So the, the, the same problem we've been observing um, in elections, uh, in um, uh, in the context of um, conflicts like like Ukrainian war, uh, the same, so to say, lack of possibility of meeting somewhere in the rational place to solve real problems. Th- this is particularly uh, troubling. Uh, I would say, uh, being very liberal uh, in myself when it comes to reproductive rights, I have to admit that. There are usually societal problems hidden behind the other arguments, right? It, the, the other argumentation wouldn't exist in the society if there was no problem. Uh, so it's not just spin that we are uh, that we have to face from the other side. There are usually problems we need to understand. While there is so little space in the debate for the two sides of the debate to, to meet and, and, and have honest conversations. So lack of these spaces, starting with social media, ending with the parliament, uh, I think this is the problem that needs to be tackled by civil society because we are the only ones who can create a forum for a more rational, less emotional uh, debate about very complex societal uh, challenges. 
Thank you, Kasha. So another topic that uh, another hot topic in the past couple of weeks is, of course, uh, Elon Musk's uh, planned uh, acquisition of, of, of Twitter. Sarah, from an investor perspective, what's your reaction to that? Can we keep can, what does it look like keeping uh, a privately held Twitter accountable? Well, first of all, the situation with Twitter and Elon Musk is very concerning from um, a human rights standpoint. And Musk has um, clearly stated his intention to limit content moderation as much as possible uh, in the name of free speech. And this is very dangerous. We know that, uh, you know, what happens when people can say whatever they want without safeguards um, and this interpretation of uh, free speech can lead to um, an increase of hate speech, uh, disinformation, and this this would have uh, a direct impact on public opinion and democracy in general, uh, especially in the current circumstances we live in with the rise of extremisms and uh, division. Now, um, the offer has been made and Twitter accepted it. We should expect um, several things. So the first one is uh, regulators' review of the transaction but it is usually limited to competition and antitrust, antitrust issues, which are um, unlikely at stakes uh, in this case. And the second thing is shareholders' approval of the transaction, which would take the form um, of a vote. We thought that we would have this vote at the upcoming AGM in May 25, but it doesn't seem like it. So shareholders have the power to influence to some extent this transaction. Um, in their evaluation, they will, um, of course, take into account um, important financial considerations, uh, but also other non-financial considerations. Uh, as Musk takeover will likely have an important impact on the future of the company. So it is crucial uh, for shareholders to pay attention to um, you know, Elon Musk's plans for the company and how they would impact human rights. And if there will be no sufficient safeguards, it, it, it is very important for shareholders to oppose the takeover through their vote. Another thing to consider is that Elon Musk is considering taking the company private for three years to implement change uh, without shareholder scrutiny. So some would argue that uh, it would make these changes more efficient uh, because there wouldn't be shareholders to analyze, challenge, and approve or disapprove the company's plans. But we also could strongly argue that shareholders' ability to take an active part in Twitter's transformation would help the company to not lose sight of human rights risk. So what I see here is an attempt to, you know, severe shareholders' rights as much as possible uh, for Elon Musk to do whatever he wants with the company and then um, be um, you know, have this fait accompli, and we would it, it would be too late. You know, I, I want to give everybody a chance to uh, kind of sum up kind of their their takeaways from from this conversation. Yeah, I'd, li- I'd like everybody to share what what you need from your allies, right? Like this is a movement where we all have different roles to play, different strengths, different uh, positionalities. And uh, one thing that 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 I'm hearing is that um, you know groups like rank, like ranking digital rights that really straddle the line between research and advocacy that um, that we need to do a better job uh, surfacing uh, the academic research uh, and re- and other types of, of civil society research into the public conversation. Right? Uh, someone in uh, in the audience uh, highlighted that it's it's not entirely true that that anecdotal evidence that only anecdotal evidence exists. Of 
of platform harms, though it is true that that's what hits the news, but and that there are academic publications, free software for collecting evidence on uh, various types of harms in a systematic matter, but it doesn't make it into the news. It doesn't make it into the policy conversation. And I think that's something that that RDR, as well as others, can, can do a better job of being the pipeline that gets that that knowledge from the academy to uh, to the public policy conversation. So I'll, I'll go in uh, in reverse alphabetical uh, order for once. So starting with Sophie, what do you need? What are either your takeaways from this conversation, or something that you need from your allies in the movement to to play your own role better? I think that something that would be helpful is just increasing general understanding of the situation and the different dynamics at play, because there are a lot of different subjects that get dumped together under the under the umbrella of digital rights or or, or technical accountability or etc it includes everything everything from user rights transparent transparency on terms of service to privacy protections to issues like hate speech and misinformation to issues like inauthentic accounts which is what i personally worked on and many others. And oftentimes, when people think of uh, invite me to panels or presentations or talks, they have completely the wrong idea of what I work on. And they and they give me a prompt on something like, based on your expertise working on artificial intelligence. And I'm like, no, I did not work on artificial intelligence at all, or etc., or misinformation, or hate speech, or etc. Like, you have to understand a problem before you can solve it in the first place. And there are a lot of different problems that are put together Together under the same umbrella currently that are actually in many ways very different problems that, that have different solutions. Many people have suggested breaking up Facebook and social media companies. That is a problem that, that is a solution that solves exactly one problem, which is social media companies are too powerful. Others, it doesn't do anything to address the others. So just better understanding is my conclusion. That's what's needed anyways. Right. And and to clarify, I think what you meant was that breaking up meta would not is not a silver bullet. It would solve the problem of too much power, but we would still have many other problems that we would need to use different solutions to address. Great. Katarzyna, what's your takeaway? Thank you for a super interesting debate. I would say two things uh, in terms of pursuing our mission and having uh, more evidence to say what we want to say to policymakers. Never enough evidence uh, of social harm more than individual harms. Individual harms is super difficult to document and also not very convincing in the times where people get killed. And and we have huge storm coming up also here in Europe. Maybe societal harms are the only ones that can speak to policymakers. So more documentation of that. Uh, We are even preparing for one project with Global Witness documenting how um, newsfeed on uh, on Facebook, the way it is moderated, uh, pushes disinformation more um, up the feed. A simple thing, but uh, again, we, we need to keep documenting that. So the more sources, the more evidence proving these issues uh, connected to how uh, social media work with their engines uh, will be extremely useful. The other um, terrain where we need more evidence is proving that alternative internet, alternative business models are possible. So everything that can prove our concepts that that something else, something more healthy, something more sustainable, more privacy uh, preserving is possible, exists somewhere and is also economically viable, would be incredible. Uh, speaking to breaking up Facebook, we also have been against that claim for a long time. We tried to push for a mo- mo- modular separation or separating layers of something like Facebook to enable competition within 
each and every layer, including algorithms and interfaces. I still believe it's an excellent idea, but people simply don't understand that. So whatever we can do, especially coming from the business side, uh, to prove or explain these concepts in practice would be incredibly helpful to push that debate beyond complaining. Chris? There's so much work to do. Uh, just to pick up where Kasha left off. To move beyond complaining, I think, is really important with the public. And so I agree with your point about um, making studies available, helping the public understand that there are solutions out here. I, I feel like a lot of the public feels powerless in a world where they don't trust government right now. And the real options for who to empower um, you know, are, are limited. It's, it's either government, the companies, or the public. And empowering one or, or, or having one, the other completely unempowered uh, I think leaves us with a, a power imbalance that exacerbates problems like disinformation. So we have a lot of work to do to help the public understand there's a role for, for them. Uh, there's a role for uh, the, the government, hopefully democratic governance that can also uh, empower them. And that there's a role for setting expectations on platforms uh, to use their power in a way that meets public expectations. So we have a lot of work to do to get folks talking together. Uh, and, and those conversations uh, are also hopefully um, in the U.S. context going to help bridge some of the ideological divides that we have uh, because we simply have folks who who are living in, in different information bubbles. Um, and so to break through that uh, is, a, is a challenge that civil society has to take on. Definitely. Uh, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, I think just to continue building on what Chris was just saying, I mean, I think we all have work to do in terms of continuing these dialogues outside of our own echo chambers, not just on social media, but, you know, we have a tendency in the advocacy world to talk to ourselves. It might feel good or it might be a fun way to spend time sitting around debating these things with people who agree with us, but it's not a good way to make progress. And I think in particular, you know, especially being a straight white man, like I've been in a lot of rooms where there's so many people, especially on this issue, you know, I know this is pervasive across society, but especially on tech issues, you know, where the whole room looks like me and we're sitting around talking about how to protect people from online voter suppression. And I'm like, you know, so and I think until we do the work to make sure that like everyone that, that we're doing the outreach, doing the education, doing the, doing the coalition building that, it, that is really necessary to make progress but not only to make progress, but to get it right. Because at the end of the day, the people that are bearing the brunt of all of the harms that we're talking about all the time are, they're not me, right? They're like communities of color. They're the people of Honduras and Azerbaijan where Facebook hasn't invested any resources. They're LGBTQ communities. They're, you know, and so we need to do a better job of getting outside of that sort of like tech policy bubble and figuring out how to both bring people to the table to make help make have their voice as we make those decisions and to communicate to the broader public as Chris was saying because it's going to take all of us to get to make progress and to make sure that that progress is equitable and advances the things that we care about deeply and not just you know more of the status quo I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, it's when 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 I first started working in this in this field uh, about 10 years ago, there was very clearly like a, there's there's human rights and there's digital rights online. And, uh, you know, there are tech, tech issues and all other issues. And, you know, that that line was always kind of flimsy and not entirely grounded in reality. Uh, now it's completely gone. And there, there are still people who think it's there. And I think we need to really educate people that it's not about rights online. It's about 
rights, right? Like the problem with with harmful speech is not that it exists on the internet, right? And yeah, I hear a lot of people, uh, including in Congress, act like you know the the pro- the real problem is that there's images of child abuse on the internet. No, that's a manifestation of the real problem, which is that children are being abused. And you can extrapolate that to any issue that that we're concerned about here, right? And so I think it's it's as you're saying, it's really important to break down these barriers and to communicate, to work hand in hand with the reproductive rights movement, with the environmental movement, the voting rights movement, immigrants' rights. I mean, the LGBT rights. I'm not going to try to list all the groups that that we're concerned about here because we'd be here all day. But I couldn't agree more. Sarah, as an investor, what what kind of help can uh, can civil society groups or or whistleblowers or other types of actors in our movement do to to, to help you and and others? like you hold companies accountable as using your power as investors? Sure. So uh, as I said, I think investors have a lot of power because they um, they can directly influence companies' behavior and uh, decisions. Uh, but we wouldn't be able to do that uh, appropriately without uh, the help, uh, the support of civil society actors and academics. We, we're not experts. We cannot be experts in anything um, and we're here to listen, to understand, and to facilitate that conversation between um, the civil society actors and uh, economic actors. And uh, the ranking digital team has been instrumental in the filing on several um, shareholders' proposals this year um, on several issues. And thanks to that, like thanks to that sort of, I don't know, dynamic, we were able to to bring to um, you know companies' management and boards, some human rights issues that I think would have taken more time for them to, uh, you know, to, to, to address. Um, so I guess this is just my way to say thank you and let's keep going that conversation. Well, you're most welcome, Sarah. You, you and all the other investors have been a, a really tremendous partners uh, for us, uh, especially over, over the past year. I'm conscious of time and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So I want to uh, to end by uh, by thanking uh, all of our uh, amazing panelists. Always been a joy every time I've spoken to each of you individually and having you all together as a group has been a, a, a real treat. Thanks. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to the panelists. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.